Open your Bibles if you have them to Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 12. If you don't have one, there is a Bible on the pew back in front of you. You can grab that one and open there to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be starting in verse 3. You only thought we were done with Matthew. Matthew does not go away easily. Uh, in all honesty, it was the plan from the beginning when, we first, when I first started going through Matthew uh, to, at the end, come back and do a sort of recap or series of recap sermons uh, on this gospel. We started the gospel of Matthew in December of 2017. So we've had a worldwide pandemic. Are we still in, are we still in one? I don't know what we're, what we're in the middle of. I'm not sure anymore where we are. But the point is, uh, we have obviously changed a whole lot since 2017. And so uh, when you go through a book that slowly as we do, as, as I want to do, uh, and it takes 28 chapters to get through and three and a half, four years to get through a book, it becomes necessary when you look at the trees that closely to occasionally take a step back and look at the forest as a whole. And so I know we've done that a little bit, or I've done that a little bit going through the Gospel of Matthew, but if you'll indulge me, I'm going to spend the next five weeks just doing a review of Matthew. But here's the catch. There is a, a, a slight catch to it. It's all going to be filtered through some questions. It's not just going to be, remember he said this, and remember he said this. It's all going to be filtered through two questions predominantly. How do I take the contents of the Gospel of Matthew and apply it to my Christian life today? All those sermons, 200 and some sermons that we went through in Matthew. How do I take all of those and distill them down to things that I need to be doing as a Christian? That's the first question. The second is, how do I take all of the contents of the Gospel of Matthew and apply it to our church today? Individually to our Christian lives, but then also collectively to our body, the church. Does it actually mean something when we read the Gospel of Matthew? Does it mean something that we should do? Or we just merely move on? So this is going to be mostly five weeks of application that's driven from the last three and a half years of exposition of the text, going verse by verse through it, now five weeks of application. So these are going to be kind of like topical sermons in some respect, but they're summaries of all the exegesis that we've done in Matthew. So essentially we're asking of ourselves, what kind of members of the body of Christ are we supposed to be? What kind of member of Christ's church do I want to be? So I really want this to be a mirror to you that you can stand in front of. These aren't going to be completely new things. There's a lot of things you're going to hear again and again, uh, like you've probably heard throughout Matthew. But they're reminders. And they're also going to serve as a philosophy for ministry. It's a philosophy for ministry for us as a church body. Perhaps you might understand why we do some of the things that we do, why we're going to do some of the things that we're going to do in the future. 
You might begin to understand that, wrapping your mind around these next five weeks. And perhaps they might also form for you a philosophy for ministry for you going forward personally in your neighborhood, maybe in your workplace, maybe with your kids. If you're a disciple of Jesus, and you have a role to play in this church. You have a role to play in your family. You have a role to play in your neighborhood. You have a role to play in this community. And the role that you play in all of those areas is actually the same role that Jesus has called His disciples to since the beginning. It's not different. It's not new and innovative. It's the same thing that Jesus has been saying to His disciples since the beginning. And we live in a world now that's overwhelmed with social media and with all kinds of new and crazy technologies and, and all sorts of very odd things and some things that are such a blessing. And it, it tends to be that we think that because of all those things, the ministry of Christ in the world around us has changed dramatically. And the reality is that it hasn't. God's Word still stands and His Word to us. And our ministry in the world around us is actually very similar to what the disciples engaged in those many years ago. First and foremost, God's Word to us in Matthew is telling us that we as Christians are to strive toward personal, that means individually and corporate, collectively as a church, kingdom ethics. That's the heartbeat. That's the beginning. That's the opening of Matthew. Is that my people are to strive toward holiness. And he goes in to define what holy living actually looks like. It says that in Matthew 5, 3-12. to We're going to read it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we prepare to think through and apply your word to our lives, we need your help. We pray for it. Lord, give it to us. Help us to see what you say in your word is true. Help us to rejoice in it, be convicted by it, be comforted by it, be encouraged and trained in righteousness through it. We can only do that if you open our minds and our hearts and our ears to hear what you have to say, to understand it, to apply it to our lives and obey it. We pray for the strength that it requires, that's required to obey this through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. 
I want you to remember that the Sermon on the Mount, which takes place in Matthew 5 to 7, forms the foundation for all of the Gospel of Matthew. In it, Jesus comes out swinging, and he introduces his people, the people that are listening to the sermon, he introduces them to what the kingdom of heaven is like. And he helps them to understand the kinds of values that are present in the kingdom of heaven that he wants them to live out on earth. This is what it would look like, in other words, if the kingdom of heaven descended on the earth and there were a whole bunch of people who made up its citizenship, who then lived out those values of the kingdom of heaven in and among a sinful community around them. How do I, as a Christian, in the midst of a sinful world, actually live out the values of the kingdom of heaven? This is what the Sermon on the Mount begins to unfold. Notice that Jesus opens our passage this morning with verse 3 saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say, theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. Which is how we often think about it, is that I will go to heaven when I die. Jesus is saying, no, no, the kingdom of heaven is coming down to you right now, and those who are poor in spirit are the ones that are citizens of that kingdom. So in other words, the question then becomes, how do I recognize the ones who are citizens of this kingdom? You say the kingdom of heaven has come down, and that there are citizens of the kingdom living amongst us. Well, how do I recognize them? And Jesus says, well, for one, they're poor in spirit. If I were to see a forest of trees, how would I recognize the trees that God himself has planted on this earth? Well, he says, they would bear fruit. And the fruit that you would see would be poverty of spirit. It would be meekness. It would be mournfulness. It would be hungering and thirsting for righteousness. So you understand that these beatitudes that he's giving to us, they're not simply saying, hey, you should be better. You should be poor in spirit like I'm telling you. You should mourn. You should be meek. That's the wrong way of looking at it. It's actually the reverse. It's saying God has changed the hearts of men and women on this earth. He has reached in and removed a heart of stone, and He has put in a heart of flesh. He has put in His very own spirit. And what happens when that spirit comes into their life is they begin to produce poverty of spirit, mournfulness and meekfulness, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. In other words, the Lord has planted them here, and the fruit that they bear looks like this. So blessed are they. Why? Because they're demonstrating that God has planted them. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. So, if we're seeking to apply the gospel of Matthew to our individual lives, then the implication of this text is very simple. 
Our goal as Christians individually is to bear this kind of fruit. It's to grow spiritual fruit. That is our objective. We, as a church body, collectively, or individually as Christians, want to be growing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. That's what he's saying. We want to look more and more like poor in spirit, like mournfulness, like meekness, like hungering and thirsting for righteousness. So these that Jesus lays out here, these Beatitudes, form a kind of barometer for us in our personal quest for holiness, you see. They demonstrate to us, if this is the fruit of the Spirit, does your life look like this? Is this how people would describe you? They show us what our character should be like. Why? Because if a citizen of heaven were to dwell on a sinful earth, this is what this person would look like. So if that's what this means, then we need to understand what each of these means. I'm going to go through these very quickly, but I want to remind you that when I preached through these originally, I spent a week on each one of these. So you can revisit these anytime you'd like to on our website or in our podcast or whatever. Here, here they are. First, the poor in spirit. They are those who depend on the Lord for everything. The poor in spirit depend on the Lord for everything. You can think of it as like a poor person would depend physically on others for provision. The one who is poor in spirit would depend on the Lord for everything, all provision, body and soul. Those who mourn are those who are brokenhearted over their own spiritual poverty and the spiritual poverty of the world around them. They mourn over their own spiritual poverty and over the spiritual poverty of the world around them. So it's really a question of how they view their own sin. They understand that their sin has put them in spiritual poverty. And so, how do I view that? That puts me in a state of mournfulness. And mournfulness of the sin in the world around me. It produces a broken and contrite spirit, in other words. I think we've heard this in the rest of Scripture. The meek have an attitude toward all people that is free of malice, it's free of vengeance, and it's characterized by gentleness and self-control. So the meek have an attitude toward all people that's free from malice and vengeance, and it's characterized by gentleness and self-control. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are those who desire for all these characteristics to be ever-growing within them. They're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. He's defining what righteousness looks like here. I want these things ever more growing in me. Those who are merciful are those who have been sinned against, but seek to forgive rather than hold a grudge. The pure in heart are those who earnestly seek righteousness. They don't just want to appear righteous to others. They want to seek it out. They want to actually have a sincere desire in their heart to pursue righteousness. The peacemakers are those who seek to restore relationships and foster good relationships 
rather than either holding grudges against someone or seeking to divide like gossip and slander. Finally, the persecuted are those who maintain the confession of faith throughout all trials and tribulations that may come. Now, what you have to understand is that you don't come by those naturally. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness, you don't come by that naturally. You come by that supernaturally. The desire for righteousness. I'm not talking about even righteousness itself, like actually doing the thing. I'm talking about just wanting to do it. That desire is given to you. You come by that desire supernaturally. Meaning that these character traits are traits that the Spirit Himself produces in you and through you. And we know that because we see a similar set of characteristics that Jesus just gave us in Paul in Galatians 5, 18-25. Read this with me. The words are going to appear on the screen behind me. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now, I wanted to include the broader quote there from Paul in, in Galatians because you can see that Paul is, is really closely aligned with the Beatitudes here in the things that he says the Spirit actually produces versus the things that the flesh produces. The Spirit is the one producing these things, not you. The life you live is not by the flesh, it's by the Spirit. The Spirit is the one producing all of those good things within you. So if indeed, he says, you are led by the Spirit, the Spirit leads you, then the following will be growing truer of you all the time. You will be keeping in step with the Spirit on a day-by-day -day basis. The Spirit will lead you in these things. You'll not be characterized by the works of the flesh that He lists up there, which are not a part of the kingdom of God and will not inherit the kingdom of God. Instead, you'll be characterized by the fruit that the Spirit who dwells within you and who leads you actually produces. So Paul is telling us then, if we live by the Spirit... Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. He's encouraging them. He's telling them, you can, these things need to be growing in you. They need to be being produced by you. You need to be keeping in step with the Spirit. The kinds of church members that we want to be are people in whom the Beatitudes that Jesus mentions, the fruit of the Spirit that Paul mentions, are growing more and more each day. And because the Spirit that produces this fruit is within us, then it's possible for them to grow in us and to become bigger, become more evident, 
to, people's, to people around us. These are the ethics of the kingdom. These are the values of the kingdom that we as a church body or we as individual Christians want to embody, want to be growing in. If you said, hey, what, what, what are a list of things that I want to see being produced in my life? You could start nowhere else than Matthew 5 and Galatians 5. These are the ethics of the kingdom that we're striving toward. That means that we want this, this spiritual fruit to be growing in us and really to be oozing out of our pores. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 17 to 20, So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And he's already told you back two chapters before that what the fruit really is. These are the kinds of fruits that I'm talking about. So then the question is, well, how do I grow that fruit? I really want that fruit to be grown in my life. How do I grow more of what the Spirit produces and less of what the flesh produces? Well, if it's true that we're supposed to be that, then how do we strive more and more to make that happen? Well, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Oh, he's training us in The Scriptures train us in righteousness. The Scriptures actually teach us to be righteous. They train us, they equip us, they correct us, they mold us. To, and then he says, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So you're telling me then, Paul has told us, he's pulled the veil back and he said, here's how it happens. Here's how that fruit is actually grown and cultivated in your life with the Word. So God's Spirit within you responds to God's Word preached to you. God's Spirit within you responds to God's Word read to you and sung by you and read by you. In other words, God's Word provides the nutrients for the soil that the fruit of the Spirit might be produced in your branches. You understand? It's God's Word that provides those nutrients and the soil rich to establish that fruit. But now I, I want you to turn, actually physically turn in your Bibles. It's not going to appear on the screen to John 15. Turn to John 15. I want you to see this. I'll wait for you to get there. John 15, 1 to 11 is what we're going to read. I want you to see what Jesus says there. It's a passage you're probably very well familiar with. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. 
And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Now, there's a treasure trove of stuff in there. I want you to just hear it, okay, first of all. And we're only going to look at a few connections here that we're going to make in this passage, but I want you to just see it, lay it in front of your eyes. I want you to see first that Jesus wants his disciples to understand that apart from him, apart from a deep connection to him, they cannot bear fruit. They are worthless. Apart from him, they are absolutely worthless. They can do nothing. Look at verse 4. He says, A branch can't bear fruit unless it stays connected to the vine. But then look at verse 5. Who is, he explains the metaphor. I am the vine... You are the branches. If, if we're going to our metaphor of a tree instead of a vine, Jesus is the trunk, we're the branches. You cannot bear fruit unless you are connected to the trunk, as a tree, a limb couldn't bear fruit unless it's connected to the trunk. So first thing, Jesus is telling all of his disciples, you have to abide in me or you are fruitless. There's no hope. But then I want you to look at verse 7. This is where things get, get weird, all right? Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, time out. You abide in me and my words abide in you? I thought it was if you abide in me and I abide in you. What is the deal with if you abide in me and my words abide in you? Is he saying something different now? He's actually saying the same thing. How does a disciple abide in Jesus and Jesus abide in the disciple? How does that happen? It's by dwelling on his word. By living in his word. By studying and understanding his word. By meditating a long time in His Word. That's what, that's what abiding is. It's living in, it's dwelling in, it's meditating on His Word. It's staying in His Word. Now, here's what this does. Here's where I think this helps us. First of all, it removes the mysticism from the idea that God's Word 
changes you. This is not a mystical thing that he's talking about here. Paul tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God, and if that's true, then why can't I just you know, read the Word in the morning, just do a cursory glance at the Scriptures, maybe have a memory verse on my mirror or two, and maybe have a verse on the back of my Christian t-shirt, and then just walk out as if in some mystical way, sprinkling the Bible on top of the things that I do, or just reading a verse here or there, actually has some transformative effect in my life. Well, it's training me in righteousness, don't you see? I, I read the verse, and, and I go on, and amen, hallelujah. I've read it, and it's transforming me. That doesn't produce the fruit of the Spirit any more than the student that sleeps on his textbook expects to have the answers for the test the next morning. God's Word doesn't work through osmosis like that. That's not how you receive correction and training. So Jesus corrects this. It's a bad interpretation, and He corrects it. But then He tells us that it's by dwelling, by meditating, by sitting in, by understanding the Word. Believe it or not, if you take the Bible and you interpret it poorly, the Spirit of God, this fruit of the Spirit, is not produced in you. You know that? It's possible to take the Bible, to read it, and come to wrong conclusions. The wrong conclusions do not produce the fruit of the Spirit. It's by meditating, by dwelling on, by understanding what's written in the Word, by understanding it in context, by understanding what Christ, who is its author, what He means when He says the things that He says. It's by understanding them rightly that the fruit of the Spirit is produced in us. Because you learn to think God's thoughts on things. That's the purpose of study. That's the purpose of reading our Bibles and growing in understanding, is learning what God thinks about things. You learn to see yourself the way God sees you. You learn to see the world the way God sees the world. You learn to respond to others the way Christ would respond to others. See, the Scriptures in that way transform us and produce fruit in us when we understand them rightly and we apply them to our lives. So if we strive toward the ethics of the kingdom, then poverty of spirit, mournfulness, meek, meekness, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, mercy, purity of the heart, love, joy, peace, and peacemaking, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, if those are the fruit that the Spirit produces in us, and we want to be growing in that, then how does that happen? We have to be creatures of His Word. That is the only way it happens. Now, every church, most every church, and most every Christian, is going to, by default, assume we are creatures of His Word. I stand on the Word of God. 
It's the Bible and the Bible alone that I stand upon. But let's be honest. We want our church to fulfill a lot of other roles beyond the teaching of God's Word. We want our church to fulfill all of our needs. Our needs for companionship. Our needs for comfort. We want our church to provide all of those needs. In fact, if we really dig down just one more level, can we do that just for a second? Don't throw stones at me. Just dig down one more level. We not only want our churches to fulfill all these other roles beyond the teaching and preaching of God's Word, we kind of want our sermons to be 30 minutes or less. I judge by your laughter that you've thought that before. I've thought that before. Believe it or not, the pastor sometimes gets in his sermon and goes, man, I wish this was over. He does. He does. We're human too. But we want our sermons to be 30 minutes, not a drop more. And most likely, if there's a Wednesday night Bible study, we probably won't show up to that. Right? Can't say amen. Ought to say ouch. Then we kind of want Sunday night worship service because it reminds us of the church that we used to have years and years ago. But if we did have it, we probably wouldn't show up to that either. How do I know that? Because we don't have Sunday night service because nobody showed up. And I mean that across the nation. I don't just mean that here. When we came, we didn't have Sunday night service when I came. So when you get down to it, we would say we're creatures of the Word, but, but then we actually don't show up but for 30 minutes, and that's all we want of the Word during the week. Well, if you combine that with our learning by osmosis method that we often do in our own private Bible study, we want our creature of the wordness to be 30 minutes a week and really nothing more with a, little, a few verses sprinkled on throughout our days, and that's about it. Well, it's no wonder then why throughout the nation our churches are weak and are torn apart by gossip and slander and controversy, and we're cultural jellyfish. We have no spine and will float wherever the tides of the culture actually take us. Because we don't want to be anchored in the Word at all. We want it to be light and quick. Ironically, I could stand up here and do ten straight weeks of a sermon series, stick to 30 minutes or less, and lay out nothing but vision, cast vision for the church, and it would be celebrated. All right, we have plans. We have ideas. We have strategies. I love strategies. We like plans. There's nothing that we love more than a good, bold vision. Now, I'm proof positive this weekend you can make plans, and it doesn't turn out always like you think it will. 
But we like new and fresh ideas. And you know what? We get frustrated when we don't know what the plan is. Tell me what's the plan for this. What's your strategy for that? What if the plan was? Teach the Word to God's people so that we could all become more and more like Jesus until we either die or Jesus returns. What if that was the plan? What if that was the extent of the plan? Here's the vision. 2020, there were so many 2020 vision sermons that were preached. None of them turned out like they thought they were. But what if the 2022 vision for our church was, we're going to preach the Word teach the Word and study the Word so that we all become more like Jesus until we either die or Jesus comes back, whichever one happens first. Would that excite you as much as a vision would? Well, it would if you're a creature of the Word, and here's why. Because a vision that starts with the meditation on God's Word never ends there. If it truly transforms the people, it never ends there. Not because the pastor is leading some strategy out in the city. It's because the people, having heard the word and having grown under it, can't keep it to themselves. There's a fundamental premise at work in what Jesus is teaching in Matthew. There are a group of people whom God has reached into and changed their heart. And He's given them a new heart, a reborn heart, a heart that beats for God and for His Word. So what we should have in the church, in our membership, assuming that we're regenerate, meaning assuming that there's Christians here that are members of the church, what we should have is people who are reborn and in them is a glimmer. It starts off just a glimmer of a heavenly nature about them. It may be faint, but it's there. It's a glimmer of a heavenly nature. And when they're taught His Word, and when the Word is dwelt on, and it's applied, and it's understood correctly, it's understood in its context, then the people become more like Christ. They start to take on the attitudes of Christ when they're faced with adversity. They're starting to think about things like Christ would think about them. They're starting to take on His thoughts. Their minds are being renewed. In which case, the church community begins to develop the ethics of the kingdom supernaturally. Because they're thinking God's thoughts on things. Now, over time, what used to be a glimmer of a heavenly nature now becomes a radiating heat of heaven. And people can sense it. Listen, when a church is on the verge of death, no one has to tell you. When you walk in from the outside, you can smell it. The same is true the other way. When there is a radiating heat of heaven amongst God's people in a church community, you can feel it when you walk in the door. How does that happen? Don't we all want that? Well, we, of course we do. We all want that. So how does that happen? 
We become creatures of his word. That's how it happens. What strategy is going to produce that kind of effect? You become a creature of his word. That's the strategy. That's what the Bible tells you will happen. So then what happens when that individual who's a member of that, ra- that church that radiates the heat of heaven, what happens when that member gets up and leaves the church community and goes to their neighborhood back home? Well, the people on their street can feel that radiating heat from heaven coming from their doorstep. And they come and knock on the door and they say, look, our electricity is out. How do you still have heat? To which the Christian responds, Jesus is my generator. You don't have to be that cheesy, but you get the idea. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who took on flesh and His ministry was radiating the heat of heaven? He restrained it. He held back on earth so He didn't kill everyone. The disciples are proof positive of that. When they go up to the Mount of Transfiguration, he's lifted up before them, and they go, Oh my goodness, what is happening? He's radiating the heat of heaven in his ministry. And so he repulses the Pharisees who want nothing to do with it. But he compels the sick and the lame and the sinners who wish to repent because in the the radiating heat of the glory of heaven. Their illnesses cannot stand, and neither can their sin. They come to repentance. See, we don't need ministry ideas. We don't need effective strategy. We don't need complex plans for church growth. We need to put our nose in the Word and become more like Jesus until we radiate the heat of heaven to the city around us. Tell me what person doesn't want to be a part of a church where the people within it are poor in spirit and mourn hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're merciful. Who doesn't want that? Listen. You understand the ethics of the kingdom that Jesus lays out That makes his church a compelling community. It's a character issue. That's what makes his church compelling. That's what makes people want to sit on the pew. That's the role you play here. Is growing in that. When people come in here, they should sense that this church radiates the heat of heaven. And that happens when we begin to grow the fruit that the Spirit produces. But the fruit that the Spirit produces is grown in a soil that's given nutrients by the Word of God supplied. And that only happens when the Word of God is not merely heard and listened to and you walk out and you act like you didn't hear it. It's when his people steep in it. But if we're going to take the gospel of Matthew and we're going to apply it to our congregation and our personal lives, then it means that these kingdom ethics need to be growing in us personally and they need to be growing corporately in our congregation. That is the role that you play as individuals in this church. 
You might have a lot of other tasks, and you might serve in a lot of other capacities. That is your role, is to grow in holiness. That is how we collectively radiate the heat of heaven to the world around us. So that means that it's going to require something of you. Now, this might sound harsh on the surface, but I want you to understand what I'm saying. As long as you're here, as long as you're a member of this church, maybe even attending this church, you're going to have to submit to the teaching of this church. You can't just attend a church and expect to become more like Jesus because His Word has been sprinkled over the top of you. As if by hearing it and ignoring it, you might walk out and be more like Jesus than when you came in. That won't happen. You have to submit to Jesus' teaching. You have to hear it. You have to receive it gladly, even if it means you've got to repent. But as long as the teaching of your church is exalting Christ, as long as the teaching of your church is calling you to submit and to and obey Jesus, then as you submit yourself to the teaching of your church, you will become more more like Christ. If for whatever reason, you can't do that joyfully, you need to leave. Hear me. I love you care about you. I want what is best for you and for your family. But if you cannot joyfully submit to the word preached here, you need to find somewhere else that you can. Because look, you're doing yourself a disservice in your spiritual growth, and you're doing the church here at Emmanuel, a disservice by continuing to sit here without being able to submit to the Word and leaving in that same obstinacy that you came in. You need to be able to submit to the Word being preached wherever you are. But if you stay, Here's what that means for our church. God's Word is going to be our guide. Now, I think you might amen that. But my question is, do you mean it? Our Scripture, the Word in front of us, God's Word, is going to be our guide. Amen? Here's what that means. The bulk of the ministry at this church is going to be teaching and preaching. That's in the adult ministry. That's in the youth ministry. That's in the children's ministry. The bulk 
of the ministry at this church is going to be in teaching and preaching. Why? Because only God's Word, rightly applied and rightly understood, will produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. You understand? Now, we're going to learn to think the way God thinks. We're going to take the Word and actually apply it to all of the things in our church. And it's going to inform all the things that we do or don't do. That means the way the church is structured even is going to come back to the Word of God. It's not going to rely on tradition. It's going to rely on the Word of God. If the Word of God is rightly understood and practiced in the church, it will coincide, believe me, with 2,000 years of church history on the whole. I will tell you that, and I will convince you that that's true. But we're going to spend our time understanding and studying it. We're going to grow to become more like Christ because we're going to rightly apply His Word to our lives. And when we do, we're going to become a community that is compelling to the world around us. Why? Because... In the understanding of God's Word, ethics of the kingdom will be produced in the lives of His people. It's a guarantee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I certainly pray for any who may, at the hearing of that, be considering leaving. First and foremost, I pray for repentance. For them. I pray that you would help them to see the bitterness and anger that they dwell in currently is not what you have for them. It's not what is preached here. It's not what is exhorted here. It's not what is understood here. It's not what is proclaimed here. And by your grace, it never will be. And so I pray that you would give them joy instead, which is the fruit that the Spirit actually does produce. I pray that you would give them patience and peace and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. But in the end, if there are differences perhaps, I pray that you would guide them in their search for a church that will exhort them, will encourage them, where their joy will be restored. And may we together, as brother and sister, rejoice in the kingdom of heaven one day when it is fulfilled. And for everyone who stays, Father, we pray that you will work in our hearts and lives that you will produce in this church a compelling community who desires nothing more than to take your word and apply it to our lives and to rejoice even when we are corrected for sin. That we'll rejoice even when we mourn over the state of affairs that we're in. Perhaps it's death or perhaps it's circumstances and poverty, whatever it may be. Even in our mourning, I pray that there would be a sense of joy that we might be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. 
So Father, only you can do this work. I pray that you would do it through your word in Jesus' name. Amen.